From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, we'll dive into the surprisingly big business of Netflix movies and why it and all the other streaming services have had a much harder time making hit movies than hit TV shows. Later on, I'll chat with Larry Sanger, the former co-founder of Wikipedia, about a document he recently published called The Declaration of Digital Independence. It's just as intense as it sounds. But first, Walmart is many things. It's huge. It's everywhere. It's usually pretty cheap. It's a weird place to hang out after like 2 a.m., but it's not a very cool company. And the company is trying to change that in a slightly secretive and unusual way. And what it's doing might have a lot to say about the future of retail and maybe how we buy stuff in general. Here to explain, Christopher Mims and Joanna Stern, who just ran across the entirety of New York to be here. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Joanna, are you okay? Um, I might need an oxygen tank, but I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I like how there was no pause between here to explain and our names. Like, there's another person waiting in the wings who's here to explain Christopher Mims and Joanna Stern. <laughs> that would be a great explainer. That's on the, on the finale of this podcast, that's what we'll do. We'll get someone here it's, to explain. It's going to be our moms, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be, like, I try to think about how I'd explain myself using all the ways I use to explain things. And I'd like to be explained with, like, mm, I think gummy bears and, and um, Sour Patch Kids. So, like, if you could explain me with those things, I'd be great. With it. I would like somebody to do it wearing the butterfly costume that you wore when you did the story on the butterfly keyboard. Oh, uh, that's how that's, I'd explain. That's how you. I would like you to be described. Oh, interesting. I okay, I'm cool with that. Yeah, and I want to be explained by people in the morpho suits in the privacy video you did. That's how I explain you, Christopher, <laughs> in a really loose, loose fitting spandex suit. <laughs> Christopher, it sounds like you you know yourself really well. Um, okay, uh-huh. so let's let's talk about retail and and it's good that you've been working on this recently, Christopher, because I I was at a bachelor party in Mexico this past weekend, and we wound up getting into this long, drunken conversation about whether the whole future of commerce is Amazon or if retail still is a thing that exists. And if you were to ask me why we had this long conversation sitting in a hot tub drunk, uh, I would not have a good answer for you. But it's like a thing that I keep thinking about now. And you wrote about this this week, and maybe the easiest place to start is... uh, Tell us like about this company in Texas that you feel like may have caught on to something about the future of retail. Well, we also right. now can't stop thinking about you in a hot tub drunk, David. Everyone on the podcast, please <laughs> clear the mind, your mind of David in a bathing suit in a hot mm-hmm. tub. And let's listen to Christopher explain this company. I'm drinking a Pacifico while we're doing this. Yeah, it's very important. Excellent. <laughs> Thanks for the detail. <laughs> I have to start by saying that uh, i got to eat a little humble pie right now because everybody who knows retail who read that piece was like good piece but also this model isn't as new as anybody claims and there's lots of people doing it but that just means that it actually is a trend so briefly the trend is the whole store within a store phenomenon which i guess jc penny started doing years ago instead of me being a retailer who buys goods at wholesale and then sells them at retail which is my like primitive first grade understanding of how all of retail works they charge brands for space, for shelf space or an area in their store. But the reason this matters now, the reason everything old is new again, is that this eliminates the conflict between online and in-store sales. So this is a real story what I'm about to tell you. When Nest first entered Best Buy, there was a major problem because people would go into Best Buy, try Nest, and then go buy it online because it was an early 
so-called direct-to-consumer company. I've done this with this so was, many things. Yeah, that's not that is that's a story of my life. Yeah, yeah. So it's a major. So this remember <laughs> back when this first started, and people called it showrooming, and it was like the death of retail. In order to to just end that problem, everybody from Macy's to JCPenney to Urban Outfitters is uh, just letting people just rent space in their stores because they really are getting into the business of um, just real estate. The other wrinkle is that people see stuff on the internet or Instagram and they expect to see that in a store. So neighborhood goods, which is, uh, has a, you know, a bunch of, uh, usual like tech investor types opened up this fancy schmancy store with a restaurant and yoga classes and like mandolin lessons on the weekends or whatever. You just go in and it's a bunch of direct to consumer internet first or internet only brands that have decided to experiment with retail. So you can like get a coffee drink and talk to the representative from hymns about your, uh, erectile dysfunction drugs while you peruse streetwear from primary and pick up a stylish onesie for your baby. That is apparently the future of retail. Consignment plus brands you've seen on Instagram. Okay. So okay, let me let me see if I understand this. So basically I walk into I walk into let's let's say Walmart someday in the future. And I'm looking at all these brands, some of which are Walmarts and some of which are like renting space in a Walmart to get in front of me. Uh and then I decide I want to buy something. I can either like pick the thing up off the shelf right then and leave with it or buy the thing on the internet. Is that accurate? And then somehow Walmart gets a cut even if I buy it on the internet. Why would I buy it on the internet? That brand is paying basically rent, rent to be in that store. So they don't care if you if it... I mean, all the better that you maybe buy it on the internet because it just means it's a more popular yeah. brand. They don't care where you buy it. They just want you to buy that brand thing somewhere. But this is what I mean. Why? Like they're why using it as a marketing I, so, channel. They're using the, the exactly. physical space so as a marketing physical channel. Physical retail has become marketing. Yeah, exactly. And I was fascinated about this whole thing too. A couple of months ago, I interviewed Warby Parker CEO and the Away CEO in the Elevator, my Elevator series, and. They were both also raving about how they're opening these stores, and it seemed like crazy to me. And one of the most interesting things I found out from those interviews was that all the online data impacts where they open the stores. So they they will see that a lot of people in some area of the country are starting to buy heavily online, and they may think about not only like the pop-up shops, which are similar to what you're talking about, Mims, but like they'll open full-on retail stores. They might not stay there forever. Like they might just come for a couple of years, pop up, say, this is, this. Is, we think we can build our market here where we know people buy this product online. We get more people foot traffic into the store and then like builds more brand awareness, again, like a, a marketing vehicle in these areas. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's the other thing you can do is if you... Uh, think your brand is going to be big enough if you have enough uh, different types of items that you're able to sell. You just build uh, your own store. So Allbirds is a great example of this. Like, right. right, like the world's most comfortable. And also, let's be honest, the world's homeliest shoes. Um, like they said that this was part of their strategy from the get-go. And, um, you know, bully for them because yeah. it is that they, uh, you know, if you own your own store, you really don't care whether or not somebody buys it there or online. It's also Apple's strategy, frankly. So you go in, you try out these super comfortable shoes, you have a tactile experience you can't have online, and then you, you go order them somewhere. All the money goes to the same place. It does seem like a lot of the stuff you're describing learned from 
Apple. I don't know if Apple invented it, but it certainly popularized the idea that this is like a place to hang out and you can go to classes and learn stuff and there's free fast yeah. Wi-Fi and, and their, their whole town square thing where it became a place to be uh, and spend many thousands of dollars on electronics. And it, I mean, it obviously worked for Apple. So it seems like the, the idea has been, well, what if we take that and turn it into everything? But I feel like yeah, that and- can't work for everything. There are a lot of things like if I walked into you know, a CVS looking for toothpaste. And they were like, oh, here's our marketing display. We have three kinds of toothpaste, but if you want the one you actually want, you can buy it online. It'll be at your house in two days. I'm like, no, I want, I would like toothpaste now. I walked into the store and I plan to leave with toothpaste. Like, please just sell me things in a store. Are you saying you don't want to have a brand activation when yeah. you go to, to the uh, <laughs> Are you saying you don't want brand loyalty of your toothpaste? I mean, do you love your brand, that brand? No. I don't. Like sure. Super don't. That's that's the other interesting thing about what's going on with some of these like more pop up startup brands from you know, Instagram and one again like I referenced Warby Parker away Allbirds like they feel like they have this like intimate connection uh, with their with their their buyers like uh, also what is the shoes the flats that I get all the time. Oh God, I'm going to look it up in a second. But you're uh, really proving your point here. That, that yeah, you I know. I, you can see you that from. I really feel loyal to the shoe company <laughs> that makes those flats. Yeah, but you actually that I just illustrated buy. another important point, Joanna, which is that we are all getting assaulted by so many new brands that um, brand loyalty has gone way down. So what marketers call the lifetime value of a customer is collapsing because it's like, oh, today I'm buying these like cool T-shirts that I saw on Instagram. But I have no loyalty to that brand because tomorrow I'm going to see a different cool T-shirt on Instagram. It's just a thing. It's all commoditized. You get the Amazon Basics version of whatever thing that you want. And it's fine because for the most part, I don't care. I just want a thing. Like that's totally true of commodities. Right. It's definitely not true of like most like cosmetics, let's say, or cars or you know what I mean? This is where I want to get back to Walmart because you you wrote sort of a side piece to the, the column that you wrote last week about this new mattress company that that is wholly owned by Walmart, but doesn't seem to want to tell you that. Um, and this is another part where it, I, I just kind of don't understand what we're doing here. Like, do are people that worried about, I mean, okay, I don't even know how to ask this question. Are we that concerned with the brand of our mattress at this point? Like, is that where society is going that I'm mattress loyal? Oh my God, the mattress world is so crazy. Like this is, I mean, I admire them for doing that, right? Because it's a very, very un-Walmart thing. It's all because uh, they aqua hired the entire Bonobos team, just like they did with uh, Mark Lore, who heads Jet, who they acquired to lead up all their e-commerce stuff. They basically were like, let's get the DNA of this uh, very, you know, internet-focused brand. It is a mattress brand, and all the branding looks exactly like Tuft & Needle or Casper when they first launched. It's all like yay fun time and it's supposed to appeal to like you know affluent millennials and they support this really uh awesome charity which helps house foster kids so it feels yay, fun like time is a really great mattress brand by the way <laughs> just throwing that it out feels there like yay, a fun classic, time. um like <laughs> mission driven you know young people founded uh, you know uh online only brand but it's backed by Walmart. Okay, so Walmart's branding is not on anywhere on it. It's not on their social media. Um, you know, it, none of the influencers who were paid to, you know, lounge on these mattresses and post that to their Instagram feeds mention Walmart anywhere. And, you know, when they when you ask them, like, well, how come Walmart doesn't show up? And, like, they're a little bit evasive and they're just like, whoa, we think it's the future that people will build a relationship with an individual brand. And it's like, 
okay, but what happens when people figure out that this is Walmart? Some people will have feelings about that. Their bet is a lot of people won't. And they may be right because also, you know, these days products to some extent can market themselves. They claim that this is a new hybrid mattress, blah, blah, blah. It's really nice. It's like more premium than what you would normally get at Walmart, but not as expensive as a Casper or a Tuft & Needle. You know, I haven't tried one, but if they're right, that it is pretty decent, you know, maybe people will buy it on its merits. But in the meantime, they're putting it into this like retail of the future store called Neighborhood Goods, and they are toting a mobile tiny home all over the country in which, you know, Instagrammers, i.e. all of us can like take a picture, a selfie and hashtag it. You know, here I tried out this mattress and it was so awesome. And oh, I love tiny homes. Christopher, you bringing up Bonobos made me realize, I think, why this whole idea makes me so angry. So I was at a wedding two years ago in Texas and uh, realized the day of the wedding that I didn't have a white dress shirt and I was supposed to wear a white dress shirt. So I go looking for a white dress shirt and the first store that comes up when I type in like, you know, men's dress shirts onto Google Maps is a Bonobos store. So I'm like, great, Bonobos, good stuff. Fun fact. So I run over Bonobos, go in, like, hey, I need a white dress shirt. So we go through the whole thing. They try me on. They, they do a fitting. They're like, oh, cool. We have a size that actually fits perfectly for you right off the rack. We don't have to do any work. And I was like, great. Uh, how much? I'll buy it right now. I have to run. And the guy was like, oh, yeah, we actually don't sell anything in the store. We only we only let you buy things online, but we can ship it to you. It'll be here in, you know, three to five business days. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, this is not a store anymore. This is not, you are not a store that sells shirts. You are a place I can go to try on shirts that I can't buy. And I feel like I just, I like the idea that you can order something online and have it delivered or order it and then go pick it up at a store or or go to the store and buy it yourself. That all those things should exist together. But this idea that physical retail is just online marketing in well, the world that I might walk into drives me nuts. I'm assuming you just didn't wear a shirt to the wedding? Uh, yeah, no, I went I, I went fully Yeah, uh, I mean, that's how I... You ready. just wore yeah. the, the mesh tank top that you always keep with you. That's exactly right. right. I feel like at this point, we don't need to run down the long list of Netflix's hit shows. There's Stranger Things and The Crown and Narcos and Orange is the New Black, which is sadly over, and Queer Eye and Making a Murder and BoJack Horseman, and, you know, you get the idea. Uh, Netflix, along with all these other streaming services, Hulu and Amazon and HBO and the rest, have gotten really good at making TV shows. But movies have been a different story for some reason. Sure, lots of people watched Bird Box. Did you guys watch Bird Box, by the way? I just read, I looked at all the memes, I was like, I get it. Okay, fair enough. So anyway, this is sort of the point, right? So Netflix has made lots of movies for a long time, but I don't know that any of its movies have really gotten to the point where something was sort of a must-watch, like, cultural moment kind of movie. But this year, Netflix is starting to roll out its big bets on blockbuster movies. It's spending hundreds of million dollars on actors and directors you've heard of and really trying to make a splash in the movie biz. But why? And why now? And is it going to work? So journal reporter R.T. Watson has been recording all of this stuff for a while now and chronicling Netflix's movie splurges. So he's at a conference, I think. But let's see if we can get him in here to tell us what's going on. R.T., let's start with a totally impossible question, which is why has Netflix not been able to make good high budget hugely successful movies it's been around forever it knows how to make tv shows why has it not made movies that have taken over the universe yet if you look at the history of hollywood if you look at the major studios um you look at their output um in recent years the bigger studios make 
making 10 to 20 films a year. You know, even in the heyday, maybe they were making 20, 20 plus, whatever. I mean, how many movies did they make, have they made each year that are memorable, that people actually enjoy watching again? And Netflix is playing catch up, obviously. They're, they're trying to do what Hollywood studios um, have been doing, but on steroids and at a much more accelerated pace. Um, and it's just a very difficult ask to be able to create memorable movies um, when you're also at the same time trying to produce four times more than studios that have been at this for decades. Like they're literally producing at a pace of four times more movies per year? Well, they had flagged that they were going to make 80 original films in 2018. And that, that includes, you know, smaller budget independent movies, documentaries, and, and, and foreign films as well. So it's not all um, sort of Hollywood caliber type films, but that's still a lot of manpower. If I'm Netflix, I could almost see talking myself into not really needing to care that much about movies. I mean, I feel like if the goal is to keep people subscribing and around, having you know eight seasons of Orange is the New Black or the entirety of Friends or whatever winds up being way more useful than one two-hour movie that most people aren't going to watch over and over again. So, like, for Netflix, what's the what's the appeal of doing movies, especially these sort of high-budget things that it's starting to get into? That's the million-dollar question that I definitely yeah, don't I'm have the answer to because I don't know why, to be honest. I mean, I think a lot of the documentary work, this is me, my own personal opinion, I think a lot of the documentary work they do is outstanding and very compelling. It's, it's not stuff that a lot of other people are doing or it's easy to have access to that type of stuff. So I think that's something that brings a lot of value. They've obviously had success with TV series, um, but it's obviously something very important to them. You can see that uh, with the Roma last year that's uh, was illustrated by how much money they spent. I mean, they spent an incredible amount of money on the Oscar campaign. Um, so having that cachet, having that prestige is very important to them, whether that actually translates in, into attracting subscribers or keeping subscribers. I don't know. I tend to think no. Um, but it's obviously something very important to their strategy or they wouldn't be lining up to pay so much money to bring in big directors, A-listers and be willing to give them millions on top of the production budget um, to compensate for the fact that they're not going to make any money on the back end. Um by not doing it with a major studio that's going to release in theaters, that's going to have that cultural impact. And um, so, yeah, I, I don't know why, why they are, but they're, they're certainly not giving up yet on their, you know, their chances of making memorable movies that make people talk about it and have that word of mouth that drive people to the platform, to the platform. Aren't they like just hugely debt spending to do all this? Yeah. I mean, their, their net debt is huge and you know, billions, about 12 billion. I, I the last time I took a look at it. Um, and the, you know, they're spending about 15 billion. They're supposed to spend about analysts are predicting about 15 billion on new content this year. So it doesn't seem like a very sustainable model unless they can really drive, um, you know, more additional subscribers to the platform. I mean, they're not, generating a lot of revenue so yeah they're taking on a lot of debt yeah i guess i'm just so, wondering like how what are we gonna pay, how are we gonna pay for this right because netflix just keeps incrementally upping those prices and we're, we're, at some point it feels like mention of the debt like we will we will pay for some of this at some point you get like a netflix so. plus dwayne the rock johnson package for five extra dollars I mean, I would have paid 
at least $200 to watch Murder Mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so weird because it seems like that's the opposite of what Netflix has always been, which is we know you don't like our Adam Sandler movies, dear movie critics, but turns out lots of people do, so we don't really care. Uh, And now they're turning around and trying to kind of have it both ways, where it's you can have this data-driven thing, but you also want, you know, to be the cool kid in Hollywood. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they can have it both ways at the same time. It's just this huge boom time, but there's only so much content we can we can consume. And most of it involving Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Okay, coming up in just a second, my interview with Wikipedia co-founder Larry Sanger about his declaration of digital independence and how we can take back some control of our online data. But first, it's time for our weekly segment, Today I Learned, in which one of us brings something we learned or have been thinking about or discovered this week. Uh, Joanna, you haven't done one of these in a while. It's your turn. Okay. This week, I learned that there is an app on all of our iPhones, if you listen to this and have an iPhone, called Find Friends. You did not learn that this week. You already knew that. I did already know that. I guarantee you already knew that. David, I Mm. did know that, but I did not think anyone ever really used this app. I truly did not think that people used this app. You thought it was like the stock. I just have to say, by the way, our podcast producer right now, she just mentioned to me this one. And so so she did just learn about that this week. Okay, So proof that somebody did learn about this. And actually, I may be wrong. Does it come preloaded on iPhones now? Is this one of the ones you can download? I'm looking. I have not downloaded it. Uh, Find iPhone is on my phone. Yes. It's not Find iPhone. It's Find Friends. Oh, no. Find oh, Friends is not on my phone. Are you on but beta? It will be, are you in the find beta? Find My is on the iOS 13. Yes. Beta. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So in but iOS 13. Find My 13, Friends is an app you have to download. Okay. So in iOS 13, for those who are on the beta, this will now be lumped into Find My. But if you are on any previous iOS 12 or earlier, it is called Find Friends. And this app has been there. I, I did not do my research on how long it's been here on, on iPhones, but it's been there for a really long time. And I've always kind of just made fun of this as being like one of those Apple apps that you never use and you put in your folder and you never use this thing. But I was out for drinks on Saturday night brag. I went out on Saturday night, guys. Mm-hmm. And in a hot tub. And I was not in a hot tub. Um, and I looked over and a friend of mine was looking at where his friends were in New York City. What? And he was looking at like a lot of friends. I had never used this service before. I never used this to track anyone in my life. And I'm now playing around with it. And I think I want to write about it. And people are using it to I, I did find some, like, very practical uses for it. People are using it if they go on vacations together and they, like, want to meet up. And so you can also limit the amount of time you share with somebody. So you can share for the day. You can share for a couple of days, I believe. You can just say, you know, share for the next hour. So you can choose the parameters of how long you'd like to share with your friends. But when a, someone else, a colleague I was talking with here in the office about this said, yeah, I was using this with my friends. We all went to, I think they went to Columbia together, and they were using this as a way to just keep tabs on where everybody was. I know some people that use this with their family. Like, they do this to know where their spouse is, which is, like, really an idea that seems like a good idea, but also a really bad idea. Why is it a bad yeah. idea? I just feel like then you have zero privacy from your family. Well, if they're, like, checking it constantly. Well, like, so I have my, like, partner on this, and I forget that she's on there. Like, it's solely, so you like, use a this. safety thing. I can't even remember, like, why we did it originally. But, yeah, and she, and she has friends that she's tracking uh, or, or who have tracked her and stuff. 
Sure. I can sort of see why families would do it, but the idea that you and your group of friends would just sort of tacitly be aware of each other that way, like on the one hand, sounds sort of wonderful. You can sort of serendipitously run into each other, be like, oh, you're around the corner, let's hang out. But also just seems weird. And like, are you just opening it up and you see, and it's like, oh, you're like, oh, bro, how's the gym? And they're like, what? You just, I see her at the gym. Yeah. It just seems so strange to me. Totally. And he said, actually said one of the things that he likes about this is like, he can see if two friends are like close to each other. And like, if they're hanging out, like this happened last night, it happened to be that. Oh my God, the this... FOMO. Holy God. Right. I'm, I'm not very good two of friends my friends are hanging out. With the two guys that I was sharing this, my location with and we I, like these were the guys I went out with on Saturday night but I saw that then they were hanging out after and I was like maybe maybe they're doing something really fun it is a super western or even American view to think that sharing your location with friends and even strangers is a weird thing and the way that I know this is that long ago I interviewed one of the four co-founders of this service called Momo which I think at the time was a third or fourth largest social network in China and guess what they have in China? All location-based social networking all the time. I wonder if it's because it's a, a higher trust society, but it's like Momo is a dating app with a location service built in. Imagine that in America. I can see who's around me who might want to talk. Like We would never do that. Remember when Facebook tried to launch a feature like this and everybody was like, nuh-uh. Like, for instance, Mims, I'm looking at you right now because we just shared our info. By the way, it says you're in the middle of Route uh, 122. Like, you might be standing in the middle of the street. So... <laughs> Get out of the middle of the street. You know how good it is. Please get out of the street. But Mm. I can then say, notify me when you leave your area, when you arrive, or when you come into close proximity of me. Yeah. Yeah, But for my family or my kids, of course, then there's like all kinds of... Oh, I'm sure this is being used. I mean, I know this is being used with families. I mean, there are obviously these specific apps that let you do this with your family. But um, I just didn't know this. I mean, I did know this was here, but I did not realize the power of this tool. And that it had been living on my phone for so long. Takeaway so, here is that privacy is dead if we ever had it. Right. I'm going to definitely right. write well, about this. And also, David, can you please share with me? No. You are? <laughs> Why? The answer is I'm at the office, I'm on a train, or I'm at home. That's all you need to know. If I'm other places, don't worry about it. Well, you know, that was the thing. Like, I tell my <laughs> wife wherever I am. But, like, what if I wanted to go buy her a present? And I want her to know. Right. And then you have to, like, turn it off, which seems even sketchier because now you've turned it off, which right. means you deliberately say, I don't want you to know. Or what this if I lied by like 10 minutes? I said, I'm leaving the office right now. But I didn't because I got That's stuck true. doing some work. You get totally caught out on all your I'm on my way things, right. which is a thing that I do constantly. Right. Yes. Uh, yeah, this is no good. I think you guys have some other issues that are not related to sharing your location that you need to work out. I don't need to be outed as the extremely unreliable person that I am. So (laughs) thank you very much, technology. What other relationship advice do you have for us, Christopher? Lots. None of it good or useful. (laughs) Yeah. Then don't get out of the middle of the street. Perfect. Coming up next, uh, a new idea about how to change the internet for the better by not tracking us uh, really at all and by giving us back control over all of our data online. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.
I think the best way to introduce you to the document we're about to talk about is just to read a section of the introduction. It's basically an argument for a new breed of nonprofit, totally decentralized social networks. And it comes from Larry Sanger, a co-founder of Wikipedia, under the title Declaration of Digital Independence. It's very intense. Here it is. For years, we have approved of and even celebrated enterprise as it has profited from our communication and labor without compensation to us. But it has become abundantly clear more recently that a callous, secretive, controlling and exploitative animus guides the centralized networks of the Internet and the corporations behind them. Yes, so Larry Sanger is not messing around. The rest of his document explains all the reason he believes we need a new idea for social networks. They have too much power. They know us too well. They make money from our data and our privacy. They make our lives worse and more complicated and just generally cause more harm than good. And then Larry offers some solutions. Ultimately, he wants to invert the way social networks work. It's, it's a big huge idea with a lot going on. I called Larry because I like a lot of his ideas, but I'm not actually convinced they're possible or could ever be made real. And if done right, nobody's going to make billions of dollars. And there's a lot of companies making billions of dollars on the way that it works now. But I kind of wanted to be proven wrong. So I called him. But first, I asked Larry, of all of the things he could be mad about online, of all of the things to put under that lofty Declaration of Independence title, why social media? In the end, they can learn a hell of a lot about us, and it isn't just—it isn't just that they're going to use that and and um, give us remarkably targeted ads. It's that they can, if they want to, and it seems like they want to, um, start controlling us in various ways to use sophisticated techniques to basically keep us on the networks longer than we might. Otherwise, so I think that's that's part of it. Um, I'm really concerned about uh, another another thing that I didn't actually explicitly state in so many words, but autonomy. We become a, a, a sort of a part of a of their machine, and that's a, a, a huge problem with me. I, this that actually is one of the first big criticisms that I had of, of social media back in like 2012 or 2013, when I started really thinking about what I disliked about it. The fact that we don't really seem to be in control of ourselves when we're on social media. That's interesting. I mean, but it, it does seem like there's a there's a balance there. And it's I think it's, it's a, a thread that runs through your your declaration of digital independence is, is this question of uh, sort of who is responsible? Because I think in the mm-hmm. in the world that we are in now, right, we're we're mm-hmm. in a place where all of these companies are being asked to do more to protect their users, and uh, that there there is this inherent tension between the people who yell about free speech and the people who are victimized by that speech that that is complicated, and and there are a lot of cases where it's not about that, but there are a lot of cases where it is about that, and uh, but then at the same time you're like in the midst of that tension you're in a position of of sort of arguing that like maybe we got into this system because our first principles for how the internet is supposed to work were wrong and and we should never have gotten here in the first place that that if we had set it up differently uh it would have been okay because i i was struck in reading this and you have these nine points at the end that are kind of the, the basic principles of how this is supposed to work like if if all nine of these came true the internet looks totally different Right. Like, am I am I overstating that? I mean, it feels like you're, you're kind of calling for a reinvention of what this thing is. It's not so much of a reinvention as a return to the roots of the Internet. 
Um, so, uh, I mean, after all, what I'm talking about is a decentralized system of data sharing, which is precisely the description of email, of um, the blogosphere, the RSS standard, which allows blogs to communicate with each other, is the thing that makes a, a decentralized system of, of blogging possible. Um, and there's all kinds of other examples. Um, well, the internet itself is a decentralized network. That's how. That's what it is. So it's not like it's a, a radical or new or unlikely idea. It's just one that needs to be implemented, and it actually has been implemented um, at, at at a relatively small scale. But still, there's millions of participants already. Not billions, as in Facebook, for example. But there are millions of participants in the various decentralized social media networks. We just need to have a, a, a Manhattan project of building them out in the way that can properly serve non-technical people. But okay, so I want to I go through, you have these nine points, and, and there are a few of them specifically that I, I'm, I'm curious to talk about, because uh, you get a lot of stuff in here, but, but I think there, there are a few things that really struck out stuck out to me that that I want to get into. So the first one is, is the second one. You say, we declare that we legally own our own data. We possess both legal and moral rights to control our own data. And it really stuck out to me because that's, that's something you hear increasingly that, that our data should be ours. But I'm curious, what does that, what does that look like? Like, how would my life change? and, And what would I do if suddenly I owned my own data, if that were how it worked? What would be different? The, uh, the data, like when you make a, a tweet, um, it would be served not uh, from Twitter servers, or at least not in the first instance. In the first instance, it would propagate from um, some service that you have direct control over and which you could easily replace with some other service, um, just like email. Um, and and uh, if you wanted to delete it, you wouldn't be deleting it from Twitter. You'd be simply deleting it on your uh, on your own service. That's almost like a total kind of inversion of how it works now, right? Where I log into Twitter and everything I do on Twitter belongs to Twitter and all I am is a user. But in the world that you're imagining, it would be kind of like there is a sort of status symbol or a, a send your status standard that I can create however I want to and then... Twitter or whatever app comes to me and pulls that from me instead of me going to Twitter and giving it to them. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And I, I can imagine all kinds of different um, variants on a, a standard that could come about. Okay. I mean, and that, I guess, gets back to uh, another one of the, the the nine points that really jumped out at me, which is number six, which says, uh, among other things, social media applications should make available data input by the user at the user's sole discretion to be distributed by all other publishers according to common global standards and protocols, just as our emails and blogs. And that's that's kind of what you're talking about, right? Where, like, if 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 we all have a sort of standardized system for this and Twitter wants to run its show a certain way... That's mm-hmm. fine. Uh, but if Twitter is the only show in town, then suddenly its rules cause problems. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Is there a better example for this than email? Because email seems sort of perfect to me, where it's like you can access email any way you want, but there's a million different apps that offer a million different things on top of email, but an email is still an email is still an email. Like, is, is that is that kind of the only thing like it? I I actually think the blogosphere is is uh, maybe the best way to to conceive of 
a an individually decentralized system. We each own our own blog if we have one. There isn't any central authority that determines whether we may or may not uh, publish something out there. Um, and if uh, people don't like what we have to say, um, their recourse is to ignore it. So obviously, social media has is a lot more features than blogging, um, at least for the end user. Uh, but uh, the principles in terms of ownership and decentralization are are much the same. I mean, it, it almost seems like that winds up being sort of cyclical in the way that it does seem like it's been where, you know, you have this set of great information that people own. And then somebody says, boy, I wish there was an easier way to read this. And then somebody builds an easier way to read this. And then somebody else builds an easier way to create it. They're like, oh, you don't have to create your own blog anymore. And then you know, two steps later, Facebook is saying, well, just do all of this in one place. And it's so much easier and more searchable. And then we come back around to, well, I'd rather have more control and decentralize. And like, we end up in this sort of flywheel of centralizing and decentralizing. Is it even possible, do you think, to kind of have our cake and eat it too, in that sense, where we have something that is convenient and good and useful, and everyone can be there, but also belongs to us, the users? I, I'm going to actually push back uh, against your premise there. I'm okay. not, we've never actually had a system of social media that's decentralized. True. I mean, if, yes, we've, we've had the, the DNS system, in other words, websites and email and various other things are, are decentralized. Um, they don't show any signs of becoming more centralized. And and I don't think there's any push right now toward centralizing uh, uh, the blogosphere. I mean, you might think Medium is making inroads there. Not really. So um, we've never tried decentralized social media. We could. We could do it. We just haven't tried it. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I, I do wonder, and another thing that struck me in reading this is it seems like what you're describing might be very hard to build a business model against. Is that why we haven't tried it? Is there is there just no money in this idea? Well, I mean, geez, I think there's got to be a lot of money involved in it in, in various ways. Um, I do think, though, that probably the main reason why the social media companies got as big as they have gotten is basically uh, the centralization. If they've got exclusive control over a whole vertical of, of content, of a, a certain content type, in other words, um, then uh, for sure, they're going to be able to, to uh, monetize that. I don't see that there's anything about um, the, the, like the difficulty of the technology. There's nothing about it that means it can't be done. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and, and to your point about the, the usability, that, that brings me to the, the last thing I really wanted to talk about on, on this list of nine things, which is number nine. Uh, it says users should be able to, or sorry, users should expect to be able to participate in the new networks and to enjoy the rights above enumerated without special technical skills. Um, yeah. That seems really important. And to your point, uh, maybe doable, but definitely difficult. Because I think I, I look back and, and part of why I think blogging didn't become sort of the dominant thing on the internet forever is that it's it's 
it's work. It was you had to design pages, you had to learn what DNS servers were, you had to have a WordPress account, and it was like it was just enough work that Facebook was easier, and so people picked Facebook. I, I worry it's always just going to be one step more complicated than the easy thing that somebody else is in charge of. Well, I don't know. Uh, look, I've I've uh, switched away from Gmail, for example. There's a lot of great software that is just as easy to use as Gmail. The the, the uh, software that I use is is uh, MailSpring, and I uh, I self-host myself. Um, I'm not saying that this is uh, like in in the cards for everyone, but what I am saying is that it takes time, uh, perhaps, for um, uh, industries to catch up with the leaders, but eventually they do. It's kind of like Windows catching up with Mac back in in the 1990s. Um, you know, uh, eventually they did, and they became dominant. Just because uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram were first to market with certain features that they have that we all now sort of expect um, does not mean that we can't have more or less that set of, of uh, features now. I mean, if the argument is that there's always going to be some competitive advantage that having a huge amount of money, um, <laughs> you know, uh, is going to offer, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. But I actually think that the main event is just, uh, you know, the concentration of, of other people. And for that, we don't even need centralization at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, for me, the 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 one that for whatever reason compels me the most is always messaging. Because uh, I, I feel like I spend all of my time in 12 different messaging apps having 12 different conversations. And to be able to, <laughs> like, yeah. if I could talk to you in Telegram from my Signal app because the standard makes sense the way that email does, I feel like my internet life would get so much better and I would be such a better friend to a lot of people. And I think that's going to happen. I'm still not sure we're ever going to be able to make the internet work the way he wants, but I like the idea more than ever. Anyway, that's our show for the week. Thanks to Larry, RT, Joanna, and Christopher for being here. Thanks to Tanya, our producer, and Wilson, our guide through the wilderness. And of course, thank you for listening. We have new episodes on Fridays, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message wherever you get your podcasts. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, email us at instantmessage at wsj.com. We'll talk to you soon.